So we are going to be in Acts for, for quite some time, which is one of the reasons for um, these books was like, well, if we're going to be here for a while, we better make good use of it. Um, so actually, we'll be in there till August. We'll be reading through, through Acts together. Yes, that's a good low whistle. Who did that? That was good. Um, and uh, it's already been planned out. As you can see, I mean, actually, the, those books are organized by the sermon. So you already know like what the sermons are going to be about and everything. There's going to be no surprises. It'll be very, uh, I won't have very very many exciting things to say, because you'll know it already. Um, and it's one of those things, too, I think, with Bible reading plans, you're like, you're good for one or two days, and then you're like, oh, I'm not so good. And then because you're not so good on keeping the checklist, you don't read it ever again, which is like the complete opposite reason for doing a Bible reading plan to begin with, is just to read the Bible more. So if you can't read through Acts in all of January, it doesn't mean you should stop. It just means you just continue going. Um, in fact, the way that um, me and Ross are reading it together is every Friday, we just read the, um, what will be the sermon text like two weeks from now, just to kind of have it in our brains. So that's how we're using it. But anyway, enough about that. Why spend so much time on a book like that? Um, don't we all have like short attention spans and uh, you know, we want to get little kind of nuggets and go away with the nuggets and do the things. Why spend a whole lot of time in Acts? Well, the last verse in Mark, so we spent two autumns going through all of Mark. The last verse in Mark, Mark 16, 8 says, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's the end of the book. How do you get from that to the explosion of the church? How do you get from that kind of fear and, uh, and holding up and, and bewilderment and trembling to speaking in boldness, to people being martyred for their faith, to people moving to other areas to start new church, all this kind of crazy stuff that happens next. How do we go from that to that? And that's a great question. And that's what we're gonna look at. How do we go from fear to boldness? Like, um, that's what we're gonna look at through the book of Acts. And just a little bit about um, this book of Acts is it's, uh, it's part of another book called Luke. So Luke is the author of Luke and Acts. Um, it's a continuation of Luke, separated basically by like a parchment. And you can see the way that he begins it. Like in my former book, Theophilus, actually the original text says, um, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was probably uh, a Roman Christian, probably some kind of level of like high-ranking official that Luke is writing this book for, or on, on behalf of, probably Theophilus is, is paying for it. Now Luke himself is a doctor. He's a trained man. I actually read today that uh, it's a, it, the most amazing thing about Luke and Acts is that anyone was able to read anything that Luke wrote because he was a doctor. Um, so that's a little doctor joke for all the doctors there. Um, but because he's a doctor, his writing style has lots of details, places, names, times, um, areas, families, all sorts of, it's, sometimes it, it might feel a little bit dry to read that because it might be, feel like a history book. No one's like, I'm gonna sit down and crack open this history book and dive into it. Like it, it, sometimes it could feel dry. Um, but I think there's a, real, there's a good reason for that. Is unlike any other holy book, the Bible is, cement, is cemented in real time and real space with real people. Like the reason why Luke wrote those things the way he did was so that the people who were reading this book could go to that place, go to that family, go to that house, go to that area and ask other people about what happened. And he could literally talk to the people who were involved or people who knew people who were involved. It's not some kind of fairy tale. This is like actual like real history here. And the book uh, of Acts is a continuation of Jesus's work. While Jesus was on earth, um, he told his followers they would do amazing things. And Acts is the very next chapter of all those amazing things of which we get to be included. And so what we get to see is the resurrected Lord's work um, through his ordinary people. The resurrected Jesus is here, at the very beginning here, these first verses. The resurrected Jesus is there, walking on earth like it's normal, 
Like, he, he just died, and now he's walking on earth. He's hanging around. He's not, like, for, like, to a couple people. He's not there for, like, a minute or a day. He's there for over a month, 40 days. That's weird and crazy. Lots of people saw him. In fact, the idea that Christ didn't actually resurrect was uh, people who, like, that came up from people who weren't believers. That wasn't an idea to hundreds of years later because it was such common knowledge that this Jesus walked around and lots of people saw him. They just didn't either know how to interpret that reality or they chose not to believe that reality. It wasn't until hundreds of years later where people were like, oh, you know what, that Jesus, he was, maybe he was real, but he didn't actually resurrect because by then all those people had died. But the people who were there, they knew it. They saw him. And this resurrected Christ continues to work through his people. And so this brings us to what God is saying to us today through these, uh, through these 11 verses. These verses today... Uh, are kind of like an intro to one theme of the book. We're going to look at it. This book will have like multiple themes, but um, these verses today, they really they talk about power. They're all about power. In power, Jesus sends the Spirit. The disciples are asking about power. The Holy Spirit, uh, what he does is he's, he's about power in, in some respect. The main uh, verse for this kind of big series we have in Acts is printed in the back of that Acts book here. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, but first, before we talk about kind of getting into the text here, um, about what, this, what is going on here with power, let's first talk about the problems that we have uh, with power. Um, what are the problems? We, well, we have lots of problems with power because other people have too much. We never have enough. Uh, but having too much isn't good for us because we're corrupted and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Many of us probably feel powerless. I think probably few of us would be like, yeah, I'm totally in control of my life. I have all this, even though for anyone who's ever existed before, we as normal human beings have had more power and more riches than anyone who's ever existed before, but we don't really feel it, even though we're the, like the most you know, top 0.1% in all of history. Because I think maybe one of the reasons is because of this. No amount of money or freedom has the power to change our hearts or our world, the way that we really want them to, the way we really desire them to, because that requires a power that we don't have. We are powerless when it comes to that. And this is what the disciples are asking. This is, their question is about power. Verse six, when they, when they say, uh, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Basically like, well, are, now are you bringing that political revolution that we've all been hoping for? Are you gonna put the baddies where they belong? Are you gonna let the goodies like us get the utopia we deserve? Like, and that's, Every single political message has ever happened. Bad guys, they get what they want. We're the good guys. We, we get what we should have. It's also the message behind every, behind every single war that's ever happened. And we all lack the power, though, to get that on track. Because if when we feel this lack of power, I think we search after it in, in the ways that are just available to us. And instead of getting power, what we get is control. And we're kind of content with that. We're like, okay, well, we can't have like, real power to change things, but maybe we, we, maybe we can have control over what already exists. So it's like our jobs, our paychecks, our families, um, partners, living situations, our schedules, whatever we do. Our life is a well-oiled system to deliver us the control we want. But is this really control? The fact that you have your job as it is, like, is that, do you really have enough power and control over that to keep that job? Like, what if your business goes a different direction or your business goes belly up or they want to fire you because whatever reason, like, there are all sorts of lack of control you have over things that you might feel really comfortable in. Or uh, what about, like, people in your family? Do you really have control over people in your family? They're actually other human beings who have all sorts of thoughts and desires and things that you have no control over. I mean, people who recently 
find themselves homeless, uh, they didn't have control over that. They didn't want to do that. And it's a very short distance between where we are now to being homeless. You get ill, your partner leaves, you lose your job. That's instant, you're homeless. We don't have control over very much. We're actually very, very close to that. The money we have, the family we have, none of that stuff is under our control. We've bought control, but what we've been sold is illusion. We've been sold the illusion of control. So now we're really far away from power. We don't have power. We want to settle for control. We don't have that either. We have the illusion of control. And then uh, since we feel this vacuum, we demand to have some kind of level of control and we work like hell. And that's a great way to put it, working like hell for it. And we can't get it, so we resort to control. We don't even get that either. And that mad dash after power ends up being a trick played against us. And what we don't get is power. We don't get control. We get the same kind of thing before, which is a side, a side item of exhaustion while we're at it. Like, that's a horrible way to live. Even the government, people, we would say, oh, well, the government really has power. But laws never really change to heart. It might make people more compliant, but laws are never going to change who we are. Their, their government is great. We should have great laws. But it's not going to give us really the change that we need as humans, that our world really needs. None of us has a power in themselves to make the kind of changes we truly desire in our lives. None of us has a power in themselves to make the kind of changes we truly desire in our world. We're completely powerless when it comes to that. And the good thing is, God kind of knows this because he kind of set things up that way. That's kind of the, the idea. That's kind of the plan. And what God teaches us through Acts is that we are powerless by ourselves, but through the Holy Spirit, we get to receive power. We get to be part of something great, part of something much bigger than ourselves. And so we're going to walk through, through these 11 verses what power looks like. Um, these themes are going to come up again, and we're, we're going to hear this over and over. And it might eventually, you know, by come. April, May, you might be feeling like, yeah, we've heard this message before, but we're going to need to hear it over and over and over again because everything else out there in the culture is telling us otherwise. We need to hear, we need to hear these things. Well, here's the four big questions we're going to look at today. How do we get power? What's power for? How, well, how do we use it? And what does it do? How do we get power? What's power for? How do we use power? What does this power do? And if at any time you have any questions, and I hope you do, there's the website at the bottom of the slides you can enter anonymous questions, and if I don't answer them in that weekly email, I'll put them in the sermon. Um, yeah, so let's go to that first stop. How do we get power? Um, here's the start. So we, uh, we've already touched on how we think uh, we get it. We work for it. We scrape for it. What's power? Well, knowledge is power. Uh, money is power. Uh, a partner is power. Like my phone, like the, the power that I have in my phone to control my calendar, that's a lot of power. We have all these kind of things we think. Um, how we view our sexual lives can be a stand-in for the powerlessness we feel. Like pornography is not first a sexual problem often. It's a, it's a desire for control, a desire for power. And here's the thing, though. We definitely do not want to be seen as powerless because that means we're weak. We aren't weak. We're the people who help weak people. We aren't needy. We're the people who want to be the heroes to help the needy people. We're not the people in those positions of need. And what if people found out exactly how powerless, how weak, how needy you are? What if you were actually honest about that? I'm willing to bet actually we'd find ourselves all in the same boat, all equally needy, all equally powerless, all equally weak. And even as I say that, there'd be some of you who are thinking, yeah, I know everyone's weak, but I'm like really weak. You don't know. Like, I'm really, really bad. Um, Everybody's probably thinking that maybe. And it's lies like that that actually keep us lonely and keep us separated because we're all actually, we're all in the same boat. We all have a problem. 
So whether you believe it or not, though, let's start at the same place. We're powerless by ourselves. So we're powerless. So, so how do we get power? Well, one thing's for sure, at least the way that God's talking to us today, one thing's for sure is we don't get it working, it, working for it ourselves. Verse five, uh, you will be baptized in the Spirit. Verse eight, you will receive the Spirit. It's all passive. Active would be something like, if you work really hard, if you're a really good Christian, if you pray a lot, if you read your Bible and study theology and show up for stuff and plant churches and lead teams and all this other stuff, then you're really gonna feel the power of the Spirit. And that's when you get to like, you know, second level Christian. If anyone gets there, please let me know because I would love to get to a second level Christian. It just doesn't exist. And really, actually, this is so far against the gospel. I, I just... I, it makes me very angry because a very popular te- it's a very popular teaching to hear if you have enough passion, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be baptized. And that is so far away from the gospel. That is just anti-gospel in all of its ways. It's so common. It's just, a, a, I, just I hate it so much. The Spirit doesn't baptize people because they're passion or devotion. That's not what we're reading here. The Spirit comes upon people who follow Jesus and those people are desperately needy. The Spirit comes upon people who need him, not who are really great without him, and he comes and adds to our lives. So we are the, the passive recipients. The person of the Holy Spirit is the one who's acting upon us. He's not withholding. He's happy to give us himself. He's, he's very happy to. And with him comes power. Now, God's kingdom can sometimes seem a little upside down because here's one of those times, as I just told you, it's a passive thing. And still, in the back of our minds, if you're like me at all, you'll be like, yeah, but what could I do to kind of get that? What can I do to, like, to have the spirit happy and work through me? Like, what's that thing I can do? But if we follow Jesus, the great thing is we already have it. We don't have to do anything for it. We already have it. Jesus is residing in us through his spirit. Like, we have it. There's nothing more to get. In fact, we have too much of it. We, we squander it. And we'll talk more about what the baptism of the Spirit is like when it comes up in later messages. It's a massive kind of theme. And uh, we're not gonna get to all of it today, but there's lots of it that goes on in Acts. There's a lot to cover. We'll take it piece by piece. But for now, let's just get this little small part. When we follow Jesus, the resurrected Lord sends the Spirit to us. The Spirit gives us himself first, and with that comes his power. It's when we follow Jesus. So that's um, how we get it. So, so what's power for? What is power for? It's a good question. Um, if we work for power ourselves, if we work ourselves, we think we own it, and then we're gonna misuse it. If we think it's something that we own, if we think it's something that we got for ourselves, we're gonna misuse it in some way because we're gonna spend it on things that we think is great, and we're not the best at doing that. I mean, case in point, basically, open any website on a news story any day and you'll hear a story of corruption and people abusing their power. That's what happens when people think power is theirs. They'll abuse it. It's what we do. And what's the power for the Holy Spirit for though? The big picture is to bring wholeness into a world that needs it. That's what the power for the Holy Spirit, that's what it's, that's what it's used for, to bring wholeness to people who need it. And specifically, verse eight says this. And how does that work out here? Well, verse eight says, you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And here's the thing, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth to be witnesses. So the resurrected Jesus sends the spirit to his followers so that we can be witnesses. Like that's here, that's the point. This is Jesus speaking. If you follow Jesus, your life is an affirmation that Jesus is who he says he is. That's who you are. And your life is a witness. It doesn't mean perfection. It means being a witness. 
A witness has to use words. Like I was, this is a whole massive story and won't get into it, but I'm happy to talk about it if you're interested. I was falsely accused by my father of a crime that I didn't commit. And my father was the star witness against me at my trial. It was this week-long federal trial. It was a huge, massive thing. He used all sorts of words against me that weren't true in order to, for him to get a little bit less of a jail sentence for himself. But if it wasn't for truthful words, I would have went to prison. Like, that really mattered to have good witnesses in my case. If I would have went to prison, if there was a lack of that truthful words, that would be a massive injustice. I think that'd be a massive injustice. Four years in prison, no thanks, I'd rather be free. But that really pales in comparison with us not using truthful words with others who are around us who don't know Jesus yet. That pales in comparison. That's not even a question. If the idea of a father intentionally seeking to accuse his son of something that he didn't do, if that gets your blood boiling, like that level of injustice, let's use that against ourselves because we're far worse than that. We need to use truthful words with those around us. If we say we love people, let's act like it. It doesn't have to be a big, massive thing. It can be really, really small. Small little invite, small prayer. doesn't have to be big. But here's the reality. God has happened to us. Whether we like it or not, sorry, God's happened to us. And we've been made a new creation. That means we are witnesses. That's who we are. Witnesses are never found by themselves. They need people to speak to. That's the whole point. Like you speak to a person about it. And who are we witnesses to? Well, here is Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, that doesn't mean we have to move to the Holy Land to order to like fulfill this. Um, it, it, it mean, like, what, what is, what's going on here? Well, Jerusalem was close by. Judea and Samaria is the, the wider region and to the ends of the earth. Obviously, that's very, obviously it's very far away. He, Jesus could have been saying to Manchester, to England, to the ends of the earth. He could have been saying to your neighbors, to your street, to all of the Trollton area. He, basically, what's near, what's the region, what's further away? People who are near and far from God. People who are close to God, who are not yet experiencing him, but people who are close, and also people who are near or who are far. This is one reason that Jesus has sent his spirit to you. You, sitting there, one reason for, the reason why Jesus has made you a new creation is for you to speak these truthful words to people who might be close to God or not there yet and people who are far off from God who aren't there yet. And anyone can really get in on this. And we might say, ah, but you don't know what I've done. Nobody's too bad if you're far off from God. Nobody is too bad from God. If you're close to God, nobody's too good for God either. To the nice person and the annoying person, to that cheerful guy in the office, and to Janet in HR. <laughs> Janet. <laughs> I mean, we, we lived, when we first moved to Manchester, we lived in a house where we had uh, some neighbors who were racist, drunk more than half the time, reeked of pot. Our house, therefore, reeked of pot often. They were loud, they fought all the time. And those are people we were called to. I didn't have to pray, God, have you called me to them? Do I have to speak the truth? I mean, what does it mean to say? I mean, how, what that means and how to do it, that's a whole separate thing, right? It can be, sometimes it can be, we can make it more of a thing, actually. Um, but I didn't have to ask if I'm called, because God had me there, God had them there, therefore I'm called to them. They're my neighbors, I'm called to them. The people that God puts in our lives, who are the people that God has in your lives? And they can be neighbors, colleagues, friends, people who you feel like are close, who feel like you know, they have their lives kind of good people who come to church but don't really know God yet, or people who are completely far off. You're like, oh, that is the last person I would ever think. I was talking to somebody yesterday at Liz's conference who um, had a, a housemate that was a, a hardcore um, atheist that converted to Christianity, and, um, and he was like, that was the last person I would ever think to come to, to faith, to know Jesus. That's how it is sometimes. Some people are close and they come along, some people are far and they come along. That's how it is. 
But isn't it interesting that this is what the Holy Spirit is for? Jesus spent 40 days on earth, like after, like resurrected. And, and what, what is he about? Well, he, what's he spending his energy about? He's, verse three says he was speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, 40 days isn't a whole lot of time. Like he has a limited amount of things he probably wants to say in there. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And that's the same thing that Jesus cares about. The same thing that the spirit cares about is the kingdom of God, bringing wholeness to places where it's not whole yet. The kingdom of God, of God is where the heavens meet the earth, where we are made whole. And this is what we get to be witnesses to. We are all full-time paid missionaries and we get to tell those who we care about how to be whole, how to live that whole life, how to live a good life, how to get the most enjoyment, how to be empowered by God himself as we are empowered by God himself. Of course we want people to know about that. Of course we want people to experience a whole life. For people that we love, we would love for that to be the case. So Jesus, he, he sends the spirit to those who follow him and with the spirit comes his power and that's a power to be part of making this world new, making this world whole. Right, so next question. That's what is this power for? It's not for us, it's for God to do this thing. It's not for us to misuse it for our good. So how do we use this power? Um, so we've learned how to get it. We've learned what it's for. How do we use it? Well, if you're a believer here or not, you may not always feel full of power, as we kind of talked about in the beginning. But this, these verses here are telling us who follow Jesus that we actually do have power whether we feel or not, whether you feel connected to it or not. The reality is that we do. Like that's the truth, that's the reality. And this is not something from us, thankfully, because our emotions go up and down, our energy goes up and down. This is from God. His energy doesn't go up and down. His emotions don't go up and down. This is from God himself. But if you're like me, you don't always feel like you're taking advantage of that. In fact, you might feel like you're just kind of weakly walking through this life that you feel like should be much stronger. I don't feel like I'm maybe properly taking advantage of that reality. And I think it's the reason why this is difficult is because we are so used to working for stuff. Like all of us are so used to working for the things that really matter that having something given to us is kind of like, we don't know what to do with it. We kind of freak out and run out of the room. Like surely there's something else. But here's two, here's two ways. How, how do we use this power? Um, two things, to rely and to share. The first thing is to rely. We're dependent. We act like the needy people we are. We listen to the words of someone who knows better than us, who's God. Um, we talk to him when we need help, which is called prayer. We pray for opportunities to show our identity as missionaries. We pray for the Holy Spirit to speak through us when those opportunities do come up. I mean, if the Holy Spirit is one with power, why would we ever think to depend on ourselves? How ridiculous is that? Why would we do that if we're given a better option? But we do. Now, joining God with his mission means every day is take your child to work day. Like Colin, he loves to help. Even like setting up the lights today. He's like, Dad, can I set the lights up? I'm like, you're probably gonna destroy it, but okay. Um, and when Colin helps, of course, if you have kids or if you've been around kids, it's gonna take longer. The result isn't gonna be as fabulous. And, um, you know, but when, I'm, when Colin helps me, I don't care because I wanna be with Colin. I want Colin to know me. I want him to know who I am. It's the same with the Spirit. The Spirit has already chosen to bring us to work. Like he's already, he's like, I know it's not gonna be great. I know it's gonna be a few scribbles. I know it's gonna be like this thing's gonna take five more hours than it should be, but I don't care. Like I'm choosing to work this way. So sorry, that's how it is. It's, it's actually like if uh, maybe the question of uh, if you got brought in, you're the child, you bring your kid to work day, you're brought in and then you're like, all right, mom, all right, dad, see you later. I got these quarterly reports. I'm gonna do them myself. Or actually, I would trust Megan to do a quarterly report. She'd probably be very good at it. Um, <laughs> probably better than I would. 
But that's just kind of crazy to think of that. It doesn't happen in the world because it's like ridiculous. It's crazy. And that's how we are with our spiritual lives. We're like, spirit, you stay at home. I'm definitely not gonna take you into work. Please do not come into work. Stay there at home. I'll do the stuff I need to do. And then I'll come back and maybe I'll talk to you again. Maybe not. And then we wonder why we're dejected. We wonder why we're lonely. We wonder why we're depressed and exhausted. We're just, it's, it's not making sense. Now the Holy Spirit He loves to bring us into his office. He loves to bring us into his workplace. His workplace is the entire world. And as much as we want to leave him at home, he loves us too much to allow us to do that. He will always bring us along with him. Because the power that we have, the power that we seek comes from a person. It's not this impersonal force like Star Wars or something like that where you just need to tap into it and it's like this thing happens and it's it's not, the Holy Spirit is a person and he's at work. He brings us to his work every day. So we need to rely on him. And also to be witnesses. It doesn't require a training course. It doesn't require like memorizing these 12 steps of how to talk to somebody about Jesus. It just means sharing about our lives. I mean, sometimes those things are helpful probably only in the fact that they give us confidence. And we may not ever say those kind of, here's how to talk to someone about Jesus words. We just need to share our lives. We don't need some kind of radical theological discourse or crazy dramatic story. It requires honest people honestly sharing about how the resurrected Lord has changed us honest people, honestly sharing about how the resurrected Lord has changed us. If he has changed you, then you're gonna have stories about it. Now, let me um, just address something here that isn't maybe necessarily in these 11 verses, but is probably in all of our hearts as we're bringing our lives to this. There's one reason why I think we don't often follow through is because we don't think we measure up. We have this really high bar for ourselves that either we place there, or other people in our lives have placed there, or all the kind of emotional baggage we bring into this. We don't think we measure up, and that means we don't follow through because we don't think we measure up. We're supposed, we think we're supposed to be perfect, but that's not, the, that's not the case. God does not demand perfection. He gives us permission. He does not demand perfection in our lives. He gives us permission in order to live it out. We haven't been called to perfection because we already have it. We have far too much of it. Like we waste it all the time. God's okay with that. He just wants us to use it as much as we can. And if you follow Jesus, you have been made new. Passively, you've already been made new. We're not, we don't need to search after something that we already have too much of. And with that perfection comes a permission to live out what he's already done in us. So it gives us permission to be able to do, maybe we talk to somebody and it is really awkward. The worst possible thing that could happen, we talk to somebody about Jesus and it's slightly awkward for 15 seconds. Oh my gosh, what's gonna happen? That's a really long 15 seconds. I have a very high tolerance for awkwardness. Um, some people don't. And then it comes like with being a pastor, you just talk to people about all sorts of things. Some people it's like, oh my gosh, 15 seconds of, of awkwardness. That's like 15 years in like awkward time. If it's like dog ears or something like that, it just feels horrible. Um, maybe, that, maybe that thing is going to happen. Maybe you'll fail, but that's okay. That's what it means to live out your true self as being a witness in Jesus. We now have permission to be our true selves. Being a witness is your true self. Sometimes we've worn the masks for so long that we don't understand where our true selves are, where our false selves are anymore. And don't get so used to the masks that you think it's your real face. Perfection, that's never been a motivating factor. That's a creative block. That's a guilt trip. No one is like, oh yes, please give me perfection. I cannot wait to attain it. That's just not, it doesn't make us want to do stuff. That holds us back. Don't bear that burden. We've been relieved from that burden. That's what Jesus has done for us. But we've been given permission to be able to live out who he's called us to be. So here's what we got so far. 
Jesus sends the Spirit to those who follow him. And with the Spirit comes his power, a power to be part of making this world new. And we rely on him and share him with those who are near and those who are far off. Now, there's one last stop for this message today, is what does this power do? Ultimately, what are we hoping will happen? Because this is not an easy way to live. It might be our true lives, but it's not an easy life. And uh, living this way, it, it can be really difficult. It's not easy to live honestly. It's not easy for us to admit our powerlessness. So like, why do it at all? What's our hope? What does this power do? It changes the world. It completely changes the world. This has been happening since Acts 1 and is still happening here in Charlton in 2020. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God. He talked about it when he was alive. He died to make it become true. He talked about it when he resurrected. And now through his spirit sending to us, he's still talking about it. We're still talking about it now. The kingdom of God is a place where people are made whole, where anemic souls get the health that they need. There was, uh, we were empty. We were burned out and what we get is rest. It's where the earth meets the heaven, where God recreates the humans that he has made to make them really fully alive. Now, sometimes it's easy to think that God isn't on the move, even though he very much is. I mean, but in front of our faces, in our culture, sometimes it's difficult to see that. Uh, to quote Mark Twain, the report of my death was an exaggeration. Right? Christianity is not dead, even though many people have claimed that it is. But why is the church advancing? Like, what? There's so many reasons for it not to. I, re I read an article uh, last week that said something like, uh, Christianity shouldn't have survived more than a, a weekend. Like, how in the world is it still going on after this multiple millennia? Well, I think one reason why we feel like God isn't on the move is because we're a bit myopic and we don't realize kind of what God is doing over the entire world. Well, I've shared this uh, stat before, but here's a bit of the Christianity's rise. This is just since 1900, by the way. Percentage of practicing Christians as a total world population. We all know the world population is growing, is growing. The growth of Christianity is like significantly outpacing the growth of, uh, of the humans. So percentage-wise, now there are more Christians, practicing Christians, ever more that there, in the world that there has been than there ever has been before. Did I say that in a way that makes sense? Percentage-wise, there are more Christians now than there ever has been. Like you might think, oh, like there's, there's like less and less Christians because we're getting more secular, secular. That's just not true. That's completely false. From 1900 even, you use my laser pointer here. Yeah, uh, this is why. Yeah. Um, so that's, this is percentage of the population. That's like maybe 3% in 1900. In a span of less than 150 years, it has like more than tripled. Like it's over 12%, and it's, it's even more now. Mostly because a lot of this growth is not happening in front of our faces. It's happening in the global south. It's happening in places that are poor, because poor people get it. It's happening in places that um, English isn't spoken. It's not the first world kind of countries. And we are here today because the resurrected Jesus spoke to these people that we're reading about this story here over 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit worked in their lives. They relied on him. They were open to him. They shared their lives with others. Some of them moved far away to start churches. Others stayed nearby to start churches. This is the story we get of Acts that, we, that we'll get into. But the Spirit worked. And their churches planted churches that planted churches that planted churches. And here we are here today because of these people following through. Very ordinary people becoming part of outposts of the kingdom of God where wholeness is, is, is um, being offered to people who are near and far to him. Now, Acts was written between... Um, the earliest people might say would be like 62 AD. The latest would be like maybe like 130 or so. 
Um, but around the, the, the year of 180, which is not so far removed from the writing of this book, what we find is evidence of Christian worship in the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire in a place that we now call Manchester. In 180, this is called the Paternoster Stone. It was found in the ruins of uh, in Castle, uh, Castle Fort. It, it's basically an anagram that felt, spells out our father and it has alpha and omega kind of at each corner. Um, this is before Manchester was Manchester. This was a symbol of where Christian worship could happen. This is when it wasn't legal to worship at all, Jesus. And this is happening in Manchester. Manchester was pretty far away from like Rome itself. And you can view this at the Manchester Museum, actually. It's kind of amazing. And also, the geographical center of our city is the bell tower at St. Anne's Church. That's the geographical center of Manchester, is a bell tower for a church. Our, our, the history of our city is a history of ordinary people that the Spirit has been using to further his purposes. Like, that's, that's a story of our city. It doesn't get told very much, but it's, it's, it's a reality. It's who, it's who we are. And we get to continue in this line of ordinary people being used by the Spirit through what we're doing today. How amazing is that? 180? What in the world? What were people, what did they even look like then? I have no idea. Liam Gallagher. <laughs> that's right, yes. <laughs> Definitely the hair and the coat. So and now, if you've read Acts, um, you know there are uh, 28 chapters, and you might have heard a few times we've talked today about um, uh, we're part of an organization called Acts 29. Does that mean we're part of like a non-biblical organization? No, basically, the idea for that is that what we are living in now is a continuation of what the Spirit has started back then. So we get 28 chapters of what the Spirit is doing in all these places, and in our lives, we're living out Acts 29 as we kind of live out um, what it means to respond to the Spirit in this way. We're ordinary brothers and sisters doing this thing, helpless and powerless as we are, but we get to be used for extraordinary purposes through what the Holy Spirit does. And we're a church plant, which means we're not yet really established as a church, um, but even in our kind of like infancy stages here, we're, we're helping other people plant churches in Italy um, and hopefully in other places. And we will plant churches in the future. Like our goal is to plant other churches, not only just here in Charlton or Manchester, but um, farther away as well. And we continue to do this because the Spirit is at work in us. And that's what the Spirit is all about. Having our lives infused with real power is so much better than settling for that illusion of control that we were happy with. Now, this all starts and continues in small ways. Sometimes in reading this book, it can kind of be like, wow, this seems overwhelming. How can we even be a part of it? But it's really like small things that get this started. a series of really small steps. That quick conversation with a friend, the invite to a pub with other believers who are around, that um, maybe that slight, quick word of the gospel, that act of kindness, the alpha invite, that prayer. And the Spirit uses our small lives for these really big purposes, allowing us to be witnesses to those near and far. And this is gonna continue until Christ returns in, in, in the power that he left with. Verse 11 um, says, men, in, men of Galilee, these are the angels who kind of showed up as Jesus is ascending to the Father in heaven. They said, why do you stand here looking in the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go to heaven, go into heaven. So we are not the ones who come in power. Christ is the one who comes in power and he will come again in power. Our job before that happens is to recognize our lack of power and rely on God in that lack as we witness to others. And we get to see him work. I'm already excited for the stories we're gonna get to hear. And, and the, the story, by the way, what we should, what we should be celebrating, um, I mean, we should celebrate when people come to faith, when people sign up for Alpha and all that. That's, yeah, we should definitely celebrate that. But we should also celebrate those acts of obedience that whether people respond to them or not, that we're doing. 
Like if we get to speak to somebody about Jesus, about the gospel, and it's completely awkward and horrible and they never wanna to talk to you again, we should celebrate that in some ways because we're being obedient to what the Spirit's called us to do. We don't have any say over how people are going to respond. We do have say over what we do with our lives. <coughs> but it's also, it's not easy to identify where power truly is in our world. And a perfect example is Rome. Uh, for, the, for the people who are reading this now, for people who are living this out now, Rome was a perfect representation of worldly power. There was nothing else like it. It was the world's super, they controlled everything. The roads, they had this massive peace. They basically, whatever Rome wanted to do, they could just do and people had to be okay with it. They controlled everything. Surely they're the powerful ones, right? How could the small little group of 120 like ragtag outcasted Jews that followed this Jesus of Nazareth who was executed like a criminal, by the way, how could they like do anything with respect to Rome? How could they contend with that? Well, I visited Rome once for an Acts 29 conference. The conference was on the outskirts of the city, but I did get a few hours to walk around the city center. If you've ever been to Rome before, it's crazy. You have the normal city and you have like the ruins kind of within the city and stuff. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's crazy looking to think like, wow, this was alive or working like 2000 years ago. Here's the Colosseum, a massive thing, even in its ruined state um, and in a complete image of what Roman power is like. This is where if you were a Christian, they put you in and you'd be tortured to death by either being mauled by animals or sliced by gladiators, basically put to death for sport. Now it's a tourist attraction. And for about 12 euro, you can skip the queue and go in and see for yourself and have a good couple hours. Now the Colosseum is in shambles. It's, in, it's literally falling apart. It's literally a ruin. And meanwhile, I was at a conference where the church was multiplying in a way that we can't even keep up with it. There weren't enough leaders to keep up with the way that God's moving his, his church. Would the original readers to this text even imagine that could be a reality? <coughs> what in the world? The difference that that makes. And what about here in Manchester? The ruins don't even exist here. They had to recreate them. Like they don't even, they're, they're gone. They're empty. They don't, they don't happen here anymore. So let's have a think about where true power comes from. Because in, in all of our heads and all of our minds, we think this is what true power is like. How can I even contend with that myself? Let's have a think about where true power comes from. If you have a hope in any power outside Jesus, that's where your hope ends up, in ruins. Empty. No one's using it. At best, it's a, it's a diversion for a few hours. But the church advances and will continue to do so because God is on the move. So what we do is we get to join him with his power. We don't use our own because that's where our own ends up. We don't use our own, we use his power. And that's what we, what we get to do is we live lives of consequence, not for something that's gonna break down in a few hundred years. And until Jesus returns in power, we remember that the one who had all the power gave it all up for us. He gave up his power so that we could join him with his um, we cannot imagine what that cost might be. A perfect God giving up his perfect life so that we could be part of it. Like, how amazing is that? How, how crazy is that? And that's what this table represents. This table represents the cost of Jesus' death. The bread is a symbol of his body that was broken for us, where he gave up his power so that in our bodies we might live out the power of the Spirit. And the cup is a symbol of Jesus' blood that was poured out. Not so that we would have to attain perfection now on our own, but we've been given perfection through it. And what we do is we come to this table 
is we give up relying on ourselves for that. It was a hearty pour. We give up relying on ourselves for that power and we give it over to Jesus. We surrender to Jesus. Both of these were given so that we would be able to experience uh, his power. We will experience his spirit as we live our lives. And as we come to remember his death, we ask that our old selves would die. We ask that our old selves would die. We were far off from God. He died to bring us close. Now the old ways of working, and they still cling on, don't they? The old ways of working though, they're put to death. They're in their death throes. And now we get to be realigned with God and our masks dissolve. Because of Jesus' death, we get to participate in his perfection because he gives it to us. And as his people, we are now given permission to join him in Manchester as he's making this world now, as he's bringing wholeness, not just to us, but to other people who, yet, who have yet to know him. And as we were far off and brought near, we're now called to do the same. We once were powerless, but through the Holy Spirit, we're given a new power. And this makes us whole and calls us, calls us to call out to others to become whole as well. Let me pray.